We solemnly swear we're up to no good. Hi, I'm Gary Roby. I'm Victoria Laguna. And we're the hosts of Harry Potter Minute, the fan podcast where we overanalyze the Harry Potter movies one magical minute at a time. Join us as we argue about whether or not McGonagall would meow at Dumbledore. She wouldn't. As we ponder just how much Harry's fortune is worth. Just $40. As we guess how much mileage one gets out of an Ollivander wand. 100,000 jinxes. As we detail the ins and outs of Hogwarts Castle. It's only a model. Join us Monday through Friday, only from DuelingGenre.com. Mischief Managed. Dueling Genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Martin Banks from the novel Off to Be the Wizard. And joining us is returning guest Brandon Ushio. Welcome, Brandon. Thanks for having me back. Always a pleasure to have you on. Uh, and in particular for this topic, because this is a book that you asked us to cover that I had not yet read. And I... Uh, I very much enjoyed it. Off to Be the Wizard is the book is the first book in the Magic 2.0 novel series by Scott Mayer, and it tells the story of a man who discovers uh, that the world may all be computer code, and he can edit it, giving him magic-like powers. So, Brandon, how did you first come to Off to Be the Wizard? You know, I came to Off to Be the Wizard back when Audible was still mainly subscribed to by a bunch of computer nerds. Uh, and the most popular books were the books that were had to do with computers or magic or something. Now it's like everybody in the world is subscribed to Audible. And so it's more like just your regular top New York Times bestseller list that shows up on there. But this one just showed up as a recommendation on Audible. And I looked at it and thought, yeah, that sounds like the kind of book that I would like. And, you know, some books, you know, there, there's the canon of classical literature this book will never be in that canon, <laughs> but it sure is a lot of fun. Oh, it definitely is. I am very glad uh, that you asked asked us to cover this, and I would anticipate using some Audible credits on the sequels in the future. I really enjoyed uh, listening to it on Audible. In fact, I I had had it like recommended by their algorithm. I get a really weird Audible recommendation algorithm because of this podcast. <laughs> And the uh, the range of genres that we end up covering, it doesn't know what I actually like, I think. But this one has pretty consistently been showing up um, in there. And uh, so I recognized it when you had suggested it. I'm like, OK, I know I've looked at that one. Uh, and listening to it, I was impressed both with uh, like the world building and some of the turns of phrase that Scott Meyer has uh, within it. And um, just having fun with a, a premise that isn't like, wildly out there like this this is not dissimilar to the matrix a very different tone but you know some of the concepts that are there <laughs> are not brand new for science fiction or or you know even philosophy <laughs> some of the ideas of like what if what if the whole world is a simulation just what we talk about as a simulation has changed through the years um but i thought the execution was really well done yeah it, and it, it, this is one that i would definitely recommend buying and doing the entire series through audible because the narrator on this is he's just amazing he does a lot of different voices and a lot of fun inflections it definitely the, some of some books are a little bit more like it doesn't matter if you read or listen to it this one is just a lot more fun if you listen to it 
Well, we'll we'll get to it. Uh, I guess we can go ahead and jump into the trivia. But one thing about the trivia is that the sixth book in the series, which came out last year, was a- exclusively an audiobook on Audible for the first six months of its release. And then it was released in print and as an ebook. So he definitely has a close relationship with Audible. Yeah, and <clears throat> that and it's it's amazing because it's kind of he's become self aware as an author, and there are references to the other books that he's done in that, in this latest book. Uh, Cause some of the middle books are, are not as good. I'm just going to say that, <laughs> but the, he, he's really picked it up. And I think audible, cause here's the, here's the beauty about services like audible and Netflix is they've got all these machine learning algorithms turning behind the scenes to say, Oh, we have a big group that likes these kind of things. And so I am sure that audible reached out to him and said, Hey, we really want you to continue this series because it's very popular with a certain demographic of our fans that we want to be able to market to them. And uh, having talked to Larry Correa before about the process, because he's done some Audible exclusive uh, works before, he said that they they actually will give you an editor and give you people to work with you. And so it's a team project as opposed to just the author, because Audible rakes in, uh, I'm trying to, I think it's 30% of every, of every audiobook sale goes to Audible as their cut of the profits. So yeah, it, it's, it steps up, it gets a little bit better, uh, in the end because in the middle he was kind of wandering a little bit, but yeah, Audible really put some, some of their marketing and editorial weight behind this. That may be why it's always showing up in my recommendations as well, because <laughs> they are invested in in the success of the series itself. Though, I mean, like even uh, like I was looking up some quotes because uh, from it because I'd listened to it as an audiobook. Uh, you know, I want to get the wording right on some of the quotes. And I found that on the Goodreads quote page. and It has over 30,000 ratings on Goodreads. So it uh, it definitely has found an audience. Which is another Amazon company, just yes. like Audible. Uh, you know what's not so, an, an Amazon or a Google or a Disney company at this point. Oh, so true. <laughs> All right. Well, a little bit of other uh, trivia. Scott Meyer first gained a following through a web comic called basic instructions and the magic 2.0 series has six novels. The most recent was published in 2019. It sounds like you have uh, listened to all the novels. Is that right, Brandon? Yes, I have. So is it still open-ended after six or does that feel like a wrap up? No, there. So the the title of the sixth one is the Vexed Generation, which how is that uh, which not is, Generation Vexed? Hmm. How was that not Generation Vexed? Because so many of his other titles are just like little puns. Right, well, so the Vexed Generation is a little pun off of uh, the Next Generation, right? Star Trek: The Next Generation, right? Oh, there we go. Exactly. Okay. So, so exactly. New, because you got to remember characters. Yeah, even even though it's uh, even though it's magic, it's it's also sci-fi, and so he takes he takes some cues off of Star Trek in a couple places in his series, and it's not a completely new cast of characters like Star Trek was, but it's but but the title is just a little bit of a pun like that. Right. Okay. Yeah. Because I saw that, and I just thought Generation Vexed was right there, but now I see it's about you know the the playing with the some of the sci-fi tropes there. Yes. All right. Have well, you ever read his? Have you ever read his auto or his Amazon author bio? I have not. Is it worth a read? 
it, it, it's pretty good. So apparently he was unsuccessful in radio and, and semi-successful as a stand-up comic. Um, but Scott Meyer found himself middle-aged working as a ride operator at Walt Disney World. Uh, and then it talks about how in his spare time he built the webcomic Basic Instructions, and built a following of fans, and then sold off to be the wizard. And so now he's a best-selling author of seven novels. So I, I think I think this is part of a new generation of books where it doesn't matter if the book sucked. He had built a following with his webcomic, and those people were going to go buy those books no matter what. And then, you know, so the, I mean, the first one definitely didn't, and it was, it was good. Uh, let's see. I think it, it is the third one or fourth one that starts to get a, it gets a little, mm, I'm not sure about that. So anyway, sorry. It's, it's, it I just find it interesting that he went from being in radio as a stand up comic, as a ride operator at Disney world. And then, oh, now I'm a best selling author. <laughs> There's. Uh, I, I think um, every best-selling author has one of those backstories where you're like, really? That's how they ended up doing this? And, and it's just uh, because there's there's no right path to becoming the best-selling author. <laughs> it's um, I, I think it was Mark Wade who talking about becoming a comic book writer. He said becoming a comic book writer is like breaking out of jail. Once one person does it, they close that hole <laughs> to stop anyone else from getting <laughs> through it. <laughs> so whatever your path was, no one can follow you in it. <laughs> All right, uh, we're about to get to the uh, spoiler summary of Off to Be the Wizard. But before we do that, we want to thank each and every one of you for downloading this episode and listening. And we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers and TV shows. And we also give monthly updates on our fantasy box office. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a top for us to discuss. So now on to the full summary for uh, Off to be the Wizard. Martin Banks does not consider himself to be a hacker, but he does like to spend his evenings looking at computer code that he should not have access to. When he finds a file, he doesn't mess around with it. He just searches for his name in it. After finding his name in one massive file, he is able to work out that it contains information about his age, height, physical location, his bank account, and so on. After debating it for a while, he changes the height listing to be a couple inches taller. He realizes that his body has stretched and he is now actually taller. He freaks out, thinking this means that reality is just a computer program. Uh, one that he has hacked into and can now edit. He decides he's not going to look at that file again, but then he can't help himself. He soon realizes that he can transport around by moving his GPS coordinates. Spotting a time code, he eventually sends himself an hour into the past and plays a poker game with himself. Well, first, he debates sending himself into the past, and then a future version of himself comes and plays poker. And then later that night, he goes back to play that same game again from the other side of the table, if that makes sense, in a timey-wimey way. Uh, deciding that he shouldn't go crazy with this new power, he doesn't make himself super wealthy or anything, but he does end up giving himself thousands of dollars at a time to go buy a new computer, new furniture, a new car. He also puts an editable version of the file onto his smartphone, and he presets some transportation codes. He also, just as a failsafe, decides that he should be able to escape to another time if something goes really bad because he's messing around with this code. So he Googles the best time to live in medieval England, and he finds a book with that title, and it, he reads the synopsis, which says 1140 to 1160. So he makes an app uh, that would make it possible for, to reset his time to 1150 in England. And he can also, if he finds a way to set his 
phone to permanently be charged and also be permanently receiving a wireless signal no matter where he is, even if there is no cell phone service wherever he goes. Uh, Agents from a special U.S. Treasury task force find Martin and question him, not because he's taken so much money, but because his bank noticed that sums of money were randomly appearing in his account. He says he can show them how he does it if they just give him his phone. He uses the transportation app that he had built to go to his parents' house. He tells his parents he loves them and he runs up to his room. He puts on an old Draco Malfoy cloak that he has uh, and seeing the police and government agents coming to his door, he presses the button to send himself to medieval England. In England, he finds a road and eventually is picked up by a woman named Gwen who is driving a cart. She's a tailor and she agrees to take Martin to the closest town. She immediately recognizes that Martin is a wizard. At the town, Martin goes to the first pub he sees. He walks in and he announces that he's a wizard. They seem unimpressed and call for the local wizard named Philip to come. Martin is sure that this is just some charlatan who does parlor tricks. To prove that he himself is a wizard, Martin announces that he's going to create see-through cloth. He jumps back to his own time just after he was last there, but before the agents have actually gotten to the front door of his house, and he runs down to the kitchen, grabs rolls of plastic wrap, and then jumps back in time to the pub and shows them the plastic wrap. Philip, uh, the the local wizard, is impressed, and he kind of says, I know how you did that. Let's go, and I want to talk to you. But Martin says, I'm the only one who can do magic here. And you need to know that. So they go have a wizard's duel. Martin uses his app to float a few feet off the ground. He was able to write a code to make it so that he was constantly reset uh, like 10 times a second, three feet above the ground. Uh, But then Philip starts literally flying through the air, shooting out lights, and he knocks Martin unconscious. Martin wakes up and he's in Philip's house. Philip reveals that he is from the future, but Martin's past. In the 1980s, Philip discovered the same code that Martin has, uh, but Philip was using a Commodore 64. And eventually, uh, by rewriting the code, Philip came back to the 1150s. We get some world building. We find out that there are dozens of computer programmers or hackers that have found this code. They're scattered across different times and places. In medieval England, it's mostly men who choose to hang out as wizards uh, because the women get called witches and unpleasant things happen to them from the locals when they're called witches. Uh, But uh, I think it says a lot of the women go and hang out in Atlantis and Martin's like, Atlantis is real. And Philip's like, oh yeah. (laughs) Atlantis is definitely real. Um, These wizards that are in medieval England have a system for welcoming new time travelers. Martin can be trained, and if he passes, he'll be given full access to the shell, which is what they call the edited computer program that responds to coded voice commands that they have written in. Martin can learn the spells and essentially be a wizard. Uh, if he's carrying a staff and or a wand, and he's also wearing wizard robes, then the shell will recognize his voice commands. Uh, if he doesn't have those things, it does not recognize any voice commands that he says. He can also write macros that will carry out new spells. So basically every magical spell is just a macro code that is going to carry out lots of individual tasks in some new impressive way gwen uh the woman that gave him a ride in town has outfitted most of the wizards who have come to this time she knows how to make their robes so they go to see her while they're there a farmer from another village comes and complains that the robes that gwen had made him have stretched out she offers to him uh those clothes for free she tells martin that it's going to be a couple weeks before she can make his wizard robes uh in that time martin is trained by philip But also, he goes to meet some other wizards, Gary, Jeff, and Tyler. They play board games and get pizza from the future. One day, while Philip is working on some mysterious project upstairs, Martin goes out by himself and is attacked by some street thugs led by a man named Kludge. Uh, But he's able to handle them fairly easily with his new powers. Philip takes Martin along to help a local bishop with an exorcism. The bishop says a nice family's 15-year-old son has become sullen and moody, and the family believes he's possessed by by demons. Martin is a little incredulous and asks the bishop if he really thinks the boy is possessed by demons. And the bishop looks at him and says, did you hear me say he's 15? Of course, he's not possessed. 
But they go in and have a heart-to-heart with the boy uh, about how he's been treated by his family. They get the boy to agree to try and be nicer to his mom and dad. The bishop promises to talk to them, too, and to make sure the parents are extra doting on this 15-year-old for a little bit. Philip helps to put on a giant light show of an exorcism to scare the parents into believing their son had been possessed. And now they're just going to love him all the more that he's been cured. As a new time traveler, Martin is summoned to see Merlin, the chair of time travelers and computer coders. He's not actually Merlin. He's a man named Jimmy who showed up in the time period a little after Philip did, but then claimed the role of Merlin and began reshaping London into Camelot. Philip hates Jimmy. He hates how he meddles with time, even though there's evidently no effect because uh, Camelot is always just a legend in their future. So even though Jimmy's doing this, it's not like rewriting time as it moves forward, but Philip thinks it's really irresponsible, and he hates how Jimmy takes credit for everything. Uh, Martin gets his robe from Gwen, who complains about that one village. Everyone there says her work has stretched out, and she's having to resize all the shirts and pants. Part of Martin's test to become a full wizard is called a salutation. Uh, This is an event in which he says a voice command, and a very impressive macro that he has written is supposed to take effect to prove to anyone who sees it that he has magical powers. He He has to write the macro himself, Um, so he is going to be working on, uh, writing that computer program while Philip works on that project upstairs. Martin goes and performs his salutation for all the wizards in Europe who've, uh, they've all come to Camelot except for Tyler, one wizard who he met to play games with. Uh, Tyler has gone missing. Uh, but Martin's salutation goes well, and it turns out that is really the only test to become a wizard. If Philip had thought he was too evil or mischievous to use magic, they would have reprogrammed his identity in the computer code so that, um, Anywhere that Martin went, machines would break down around him and then just sent him back to his own time. And he never would have been able to come back and claim to be a wizard in medieval times. Uh, Soon after he's become a wizard, Martin gets a call from Gary. Gwen had come to Gary describing something terrible. So Gary had called Martin and Jeff to try and help him check this out. Tyler is still missing, so he can't get him to help. Philip isn't responding to Gary's calls, so he can't get Philip. So now Gwen... uh, uh, Martin and uh, Jeff go to investigate the village where people were complaining about their clothes stretching out. And when they get there, um, they see all the corpses. Everyone has died. Uh, and Martin and Gary think that everyone in town looks like they've shrunk, shrunk, except their feet look extra large. They speculate that a wizard was trying to turn everyone here into hobbits. The wizards are all ambushed by Kludge and his thugs, who believe wizards must have killed everyone in this town, Fortunately, Gwen has secretly been a witch this whole time. She reveals her powers to save the three wizards, who are all very surprised because they've all known Gwen. She made their robes. Uh, They've all tried to ask her out on dates. She's not gone on a date with any of them, but none of them knew that she had magical powers like they do. Um, Thinking about what wizard would do this to this village, they all start to wonder about Philip's secret project upstairs. Nobody thinks Philip is evil, but... They feel they have no they have no choice but to go investigate and just double check that he's not, you know, trying to turn people into hobbits as his secret project. So they go to his house (laughs) upstairs, and after he's confronted, he very angrily takes them all upstairs to show them what he's been working on. He's been building a car piece by piece. He goes to the future, takes one piece of a car and brings it back. Because one one of the things they explain is you can't take a large complex object back with you unless you can kind of, uh, as much as you could hold, you could safely transport. And there's no way he could hold a car. So he has to take, uh, you know, as much of the engine as he can at a time back and then rebuild it. Um, Now, the even though Philip is angry, they kind of have a discussion about what is possibly going on with this town and everyone reveals what they know. And Philip is the one who kind of puts some pieces together. He realizes that Tyler, the missing wizard has been ghosted, 
which means he's basically been turned into a ghost. He's able to summon him back, and Tyler reveals that it was Jimmy, the one who calls himself Merlin, who ghosted him. They summon all the wizards of uh, the land together, and they go to confront Jimmy. There's lots of magical twists and duels and fights, but eventually we learn that Jimmy wanted to make medieval England more fantasy-like. So he's transforming some people into hobbits, others into orcs, others into elves. Uh, but if you messed up in this process, the people died. He doesn't really care about that because he says they're all just part of a computer program, so it doesn't matter. Uh, eventually, the other wizards are able to defeat Jimmy, and they reset his code so that he can't work with technology and send him back to the 1990s, uh, which is when he came from. Philip is named the new head of the wizards. Gwen announces she's going to go try living in Atlantis. And Martin makes one more visit to his time after the agents have left his house to talk to his parents and tell them not to worry about him. We see an older man is watching Martin from a distance. The old man makes notes uh, in a notebook uh, and then he bikes away. And as he passes cars, their engines mysteriously, mysteriously stop working. The end. Very nice. Ah, thank you. So that is off to be the wizard. Um, like I said, there's a lot of tropes that you recognize if you're a fan of science fiction. Um, but I thought it was put together in kind of a fun, fun, entertaining way. Yeah, and that, that's the so that's the thing about this book. There is a lot of fun and entertaining in it. If you really stretch hard, you might be able to find a couple themes that they have in there. But Scott Meyer, his. Uh, his Amazon bio never said anything about working with computers, but the way that he talks about things, he had to have had some help desk experience or something like that, because this is the classic story. And like I say classic because I've lived it. Uh, anyone else probably will not think this is classic, but it's the classic story of a new computer guy going to work and an old computer guy showing him the ropes because literally uh, when I first started working in computers as an adult, I've been working in, with computers for about 25 years now. Um, but when I was early in my 20s, uh, I was that's really when I started taking it seriously. And the guy who was training me everything said to me, okay, Brandon, here is the trick about computers. Here's the trick about working on people's computers and on servers and at clients because I was I a was, uh, a consultant who would go from site to site with these people and fix things. Uh, he said, the biggest trick about this is to actually make it look like you are busy. And <laughs> I was like, what? And because working with computers, a lot of times you, you have to wait for things to happen. You run a program and it's doing something and you just have to sit there and wait. However, if the person paying for your bill walks by and sees you just with like your feet up, they're, they'll wonder why they're paying for time where you were just sitting there with your feet up. So literally the same, the same tips that Philip gave Martin in his introduction were things that I was told as an entry level computer person. And it just, I think that might be part of why I am so connected with this book. Yeah, and that's the like you said, one of the first tips that Martin is given as as he enters this world. It's like being a wizard. It's about like doing one task a day, uh, but making everyone think that it's taking your entire day to go do that one thing. Literally today, I had a coworker finish one project. Uh, he there was one thing that was broken, and he and he and I we spent about four hours working on it. And uh, he's like, "Well, I guess my job's done for the day." 
And uh, our boss was there and said something to the effect of, oh, so you only, you only get one thing done a day. And I was just like, don't tell him the secret. <laughs> don't tell him the secret. Because I mean, that's, that, that's the thing, right? Like as long as things are up and running and people are assuming you're doing your work. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Just in case my boss is listening. Just in case your boss is listening I, to this one. <laughs> was like, um, no, I, uh, I, I saw a meme going around of someone uh, like completing uh, a computer oriented task and then like listing their price. And I can't remember what it was. And then the person saying like, that's outrageous. That took you 20 minutes. And then the person lists all the schooling, all the years of experience that they have, all the equipment that they brought to be able to do it uh, this quickly. And so that's what you're paying for. Not the 20 minutes I just sat down right now. Right. Right. That, I mean, and, and that's true. That's true. But when you are paid to be there for eight hours, it, they, <laughs> that one's a little, sometimes different. <laughs> time does matter. Yes. Yeah. That, that one is a different situation than uh, coming in uh, to, to fix one thing. So you mentioned that um, like, like the book maybe doesn't have as much thematic heft. Uh, it, it is definitely fun and enjoyable. And I definitely laughed at some of the, the turns of phrase that um, Scott introduced. But one thing that stood out to me is like throughout, I'm kind of thinking like the, this would not pass the Bechdel test. <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> and they kind of like, there's some acknowledgement as to why um, like the, the period in which Martin has chosen to time travel would not be uh, friendly to women uh, demonstrating magical powers uh, nearly as friendly as it was for men. And there's uh, one thing that made me chuckle in acknowledging that um, I, I went to go find the exact quote so I could read it. Um, after they discover that Gwen has magical powers, Martin said, uh, wants to like talk to about uh, her about when she became a witch. And then he says, and this is a quote, he tried to come up with a word that meant witch that didn't have any insulting or demeaning overtones. He couldn't. In fact, after some thought, he couldn't think of a word that meant female that men hadn't imbued with some belittling shade of meaning. Finally, after a much longer silence than he intended, he simply said, I can understand why, like meaning why she didn't reveal that she was a witch. Um, so in writing that, I, you have to acknowledge that Meyer is aware <laughs> that there's some issues, I think, in uh, <laughs> this fantasy world that's populated almost exclusively by men. Uh, and like I said, there's some acknowledgement as to why that is and seeing as how this is the first book in a six-part series i'm shocked if they don't head to atlantis at some point to see some of the women coders who have discovered uh this file yeah in a later in a later book uh speller high water they end up going to atlantis for a summit of wizards from all over space and time and they come to atlantis and there are a lot of women they are they introduce new characters that are pretty awesome that continue to build on some of the things, the themes in this book that they explored, like free will and uh, time travel and why you can't go forward in time versus if you go back in time, how can there be two copies of you? Uh, they, so they explore all sorts of stuff in the, in the later books. However, it is still very much a dude writing what he thinks women, how women would react. Like, and and when I say a dude, I don't mean like he's, he's, he's obviously self-aware because of that quote in that book. Right. But he, and he's trying really hard, but I think that's part of the problem is that he's trying really hard. So it's kind of like, 
the it's a common complaint in fantasy that with fantasy male writers that the strong female characters are written as as they're female but they're written essentially as if they're a man and there's really no dis- distinction among there and there's a lot of similarities there um where either they're written with masculine traits or they are written to stereotypical, oh, this is what how women are portrayed by my target audience. Right. And uh, without putting in uh, work to have uh, like beta readers who are looking for those particular issues or some other things, it's, it's really, I think, an easy uh, trope to fall into. Yes, yes. Um, you, you acknowledged, uh, like the, there's some interesting things that happen with like the idea that these wizards that they've all traveled back from different points. So some from the eighties, some from the nineties, from the early two thousands, some from, you know, 2010s, uh, and they can't move forward, uh, past their point, uh, in time, uh, because it hasn't happened yet, but all the later wizards know what had happened because it's their past, you know? <laughs> and, and so there's definitely some mind twisting that happens uh in this in trying to blend the science fiction and the fantasy which i think is something that's done successfully uh, like i never acknowledged the quote but the, you know the idea that any sufficiently advanced technology is magic uh certainly ran through my head a couple times um in in how uh ideas or or how the world functioned uh you know what was being presented to us um that kind of blending of the two definitely crossed my mind now, let me ask you a question. This, this is something that I've thought about while, while listening to this book on a couple occasions now. Uh, so Martin is made fun of a couple times because he gets caught within a week of getting access to the file and modifying his bank account. But in the 1980s, it would, be, it would have been a lot harder or a lot easier to get to mess with your bank account and not get caught than it would in the 2010s. And, or the, even the late 2000, I don't even know how to say that decade, but the, the odds, right? Right. Um, so as a, as a comic book guy, I've had this, I've had this thought with comic book heroes in the golden age, super easy to throw on a mask and have a hidden identity, a secret identity. But nowadays with facial recognition and cameras all over the place, it would be really hard. Do you think there's, do you think the the time changes the way that like, do you think Martin's getting more crap, I guess, than he deserves for getting caught? Uh, yeah. I thought the same thing, especially when they all said that they got caught for basically the same thing. <laughs> it's it's not that he was more irresponsible. It's just uh, that the, those who are looking for it are able to catch onto it a little faster than uh, those who were doing the same tricks in the eighties and nineties. Now that was I'm like, see that was something because Philip often acts very high and mighty, but I'm like, you're on a Commodore 64. They were not analyzing mass massive bank accounts for fraud the same way that they do nowadays. Yeah, I definitely had that kind of thought, kind of pass through that um, when he first discovered it, thinking he was the first to ever discover it, and I think we find out he wasn't the first to have discovered the code. Right. But, but Philip is kind of presented as, uh, you know, one of the very, you know, cutting edge individuals to have learned about the code and how to manipulate it, uh, in the way that, um, Martin does, which I did enjoy as, as a turn where like often 
in these stories, like you, you following the protagonist, uh, they're the first ones to do everything. And this time you see <laughs> like, a, um, you know, he's kind of uh, taken down a peg immediately uh, after he, he thinks he's, I guess he's, he never comes off as like egotistical about it. He just assumes though, that he's the only one. It's not like he thinks he's the smartest one to uh, uh, smartest programmer to have walked to the earth. And that's why he found it. It's more like, well, I accidentally found this and I must be the only one who accidentally found it. Not I'm the only one who's clever enough to have found it. Because it's, it's all because he's not self-centered because he's spent a lot of time thinking about whether he's self-centered, right? Right. The the quote near the front of the book is he had spent a lot of time thinking about himself and had come to the conclusion that he was definitely not self-absorbed, <laughs> which is I, uh, one of those turns of phrase that I, you know, I, I enjoyed that Scott Meyer. That was, that was well, well written there. Um, but, uh, but like as a I character, I, I would think like Jimmy, the one who goes and names himself Merlin, he would think he was the only one smart enough initially until he finds out otherwise. Like, oh, I, yes, of course I cracked this code. And you never get, really get that feeling from Martin. See, and I, so I took it slightly different than, than that with Jimmy. And possibly it's because of my experience working with computers. Cause I've had coworkers before where I've cracked the problem. And I created the solution and the, and somebody uh, that I work with jumped into it at the very last moment. I was like, Oh yeah, Brandon and I did this. And it was just, it just like Jimmy. And I'll, I'll tell you a secret. A lot of times nowadays when that happens, I've, I've built up enough reputation that I let the other person take the credit because then when the end users have questions or problems, they're the ones who are, well, what's going on here? How does this work? Why isn't this happening? And it's a whole lot easier if you don't, if people don't know that you were involved in it. But I've seen it a lot, that exact same uh, Philip and Jimmy situation where there are t- there's one person who's doing the bulk of the work and then the other person who's taking the credit. And it, it a lot of times... Think... Comp- oh, uh, go ahead. I was going to say, and a lot of times in the computer world your personalities are one of the two where I don't care. I don't want the credit. I just want the cool thing that I just designed and, or the other personality of, Hey, I really like all this praise and act and these accolades that I get for solving all these problems. I want all of the, I want all of that. And I think depending on the day, my personality switches between the two, but right now I'm very much in the Philip camp of I'll let somebody else deal with all of the problem that comes with the accolades. So. Yeah, the uh, the Jimmy character, it made me think about uh, in, in like the last 10 or 15 years, it seems like there's been waves of using Edison and Tesla in, in pop culture. And Jimmy is kind of the more villainous versions of Edison that get presented as uh, someone who was just picking up the ideas that he almost uh, uh, made a uh, assembly line of of brilliant men beneath him uh passed these ideas along and then he picked them up at the end and presented them to the world as his own ideas which there is a talent there as well i'm i'm going to say they're cultivating and seeing who has those good ideas and sticking with them that's there's a skill to that as well it's just a different skill right uh and um I, I guess since we're talking about Jimmy and Philip so much, I do want to acknowledge one of my favorite parts of the book was that there came a moment where we were nearing the final act and 
there was the village, uh, you know, with all the dead people uh, that were being turned into hobbits uh, that, you know, that somehow that recoding of their nature had caused them to die. And they're like, well, what wizard would do this? And I thought, I think there's been a few too many hints dropped about Gwen wielding magic like that. I don't think that's a surprise to anyone when when she turns out uh, to, to know how to use magic. Uh, and also at the same time, I thought there's probably been too many hints dropped about Philip. It's going to be one of those cases where the mentor who you thought was a good guy is going to be the bad guy. And the Jimmy who we thought was the bad guy is going to turn out to be the good guy. Uh, and then when Gwen really does start using magic, I'm like, Oh, all our suspicions are going to come out. And then there's this twist where it's like, no, no, the mentor really is a good guy and the bad guy really is a bad guy. And at this point, we've been so trained for the other twist that that almost became a twist unto itself. That surprised me. Yeah, I love that the twist is no twist. Yes. And and it became surprising because so many hints had been laid at the reader's feet. And, And there's an art to that where you can feel like you're like one step ahead of the story and it can be really satisfying. But it felt like I was like two steps ahead. I'm like, uh... I, I hope it's not Philip is the bad guy <laughs> because uh, <laughs> that's just not going to be satisfying. And, and I think that was a very well done part of the story to, like you said, make the no twist be a surprise um, because we had been so set up to come for the twist. And I think having Gwen be revealed uh, as a, a witch when she was, was actually like the perfect time to make you feel like, Oh, it's everything I kind of expected. Yeah, I, I know what's going on here, and this is this is not this is just a popcorn entertainment type book. Um, I did I did like how how they had Philip uh, all of the sudden all of the pieces fell into place where you're like, oh, this is pointing directly at Philip, and let's just say the rest of the book you don't think it's a you don't think it's that well crafted just be, you know, it has some good turns of phrase, but it's just kind of a fun story. However, I noticed something on my last listen through that I don't know that I ever noticed before. And it shows me that Scott Meyer was actually really good at planting foreshadowing throughout the entire book as to things that were actually going to happen. When Martin crashes his car and teleports out of it initially and he has to go run into his parents' house, he runs and almost knocks over an old man on a bicycle. And it references oh, that right. early on in the book. Uh-huh. And and you and you it's just a line that you're just like, oh, he's just building the world. But then when you get to the end of the the end of the story and you get that reveal, no, he he'd been sprinkling things throughout that entire throughout that entire uh book that points to where it's going to go but just in such offhanded ways that you're like oh that's nothing that's nothing that's nothing until it is something right yeah and in in recognizing some of the craft here i think the book has so much world building that you kind of stop looking for that extra twist right uh and that's a way that he's able to do this little sleight of hand and actually make it pretty satisfying when you discover what philip really was up to and then it's in some ways it's kind of like um in the Harry Potter books, when like Draco's just a jerk because he's a jerk and he's always a jerk. Like, I kind of like that. Sometimes you need a character who's just <laughs> like, like there's not super deep, you know, motivations. It's like, nope, they're just the bad guy. 
And that's what we get with Jimmy uh, in this one. Um, it, because like in writing the summary, I was like, ooh, like this is like long swaths of this are really just world building, which I think is well done. Um, but it's not like a plot heavy uh, middle act of, uh, of the book. You're kind of like, okay, well, we're heading towards him passing his wizard tests and he kind of does without any trouble there's no real shocks or twists in learning to be a wizard and then like we get this little mystery in the in the final act um about this town and you find out that there was um you know larger machinations coming from jimmy who claims to be merlin um but by having to build do all that world building uh i think it kind of set up a certain kind of expectation for what was coming. Like you said, uh, you know, like, oh, uh, you know, like this, this is entertaining writing and it's a fun world, but I'm not looking for the craziest twists. And then you kind of expect what has become uh, a kind of generic event of like, oh, the good guy that was showing you the ropes is really the bad guy that has his own ends. Uh, and then to undo that, I thought worked quite well. Yes. Yes. The reveal at the end is pretty good. And, uh, I think that's probably why I've really enjoyed this Magic 2.0 series. I am a sucker when it comes to world building and cool systems of magic. Because even though it's done through a computer, it's magic. And it's just a system of magic that's not been used very frequently. There's lots of times, like you said, The Matrix is a very, very famous example of using computer code as like magic. Um, but so the Amazon recommendation engine, and I keep going back there, but that's because Amazon owns the world. Um, it recommends. So if people who've bought Scott Meyer also buys Drew Hayes and Brandon Sanderson and John Scalzi, who are very much world builders, they don't write the best characters in the world, but their, but their world is just, it, it's just a well thought out world that you could drop in so many stories into there. And I think, I think that has a lot to do with the success of these books right here. Yeah. And I'm not by any means a computer programmer. Like I am just aware enough of what's going on to know. I don't know what's going on when it comes to computer programming. Uh, And yet despite that and not having some of the experiences that you said kind of resonated or you saw parallels. Um, I was able to understand the world that was being presented. Like he does a good job of uh, like giving me as, as kind of a novice when it comes to programming, just enough information to understand how everything's working. And it's not just hand wavy magic. It's like, okay, well now I understand what the macros are and I understand how that becomes the performance of spells. Uh, to what they call the locals, right? <laughs> in, um, in, in medieval England. And I thought the world building was definitely a strength of this book. And it may, it, when you, there is strong world building, I think that's often where you um, see a successful series where it's, it's not just because there's like one core character that you love. It's like, oh, no, I kind of want to go back to that place and have that experience again. Give me an entire story based out of the Necromancer's Cave. Give <laughs> yeah. me, tell me more about the Magnuses. Like, there's, it's just kind of a fun world, right? Or, or even like uh, the way that these wizards in medieval England pop back to their modern times and have to like accomplish a few tasks, and then they come back, and it's you know it's already done when they come back. But I wouldn't mind a short story where you follow them and see how they hop around and have to not get caught, uh, have to look normal. Uh, have to like set 
three things in motion that are going to be paid off, you know, five pages down. Like, I wouldn't mind seeing that little side adventure that, you know, each one of these wizards is having every time they disappear. Part of me feels like as I've as I've read these stories that he writes, that when he writes that and he's like, OK, this is what I need. And he writes that, OK, this is what I need. Now, what is the deus ex machina that I'm going to use to get that? Um, just because you, when you have magic like that, it is so easy to it is so easy to uh, to fill in the gaps with however you want to to make the story progress. Um, but I, I think that's I think that's also an acknowledgement uh, and a and a hand wavy thing. At, I can't tell you how many times I've had people come in and say, "I need this done and I need it done now," and they just expect it to be magic. And you know, I run a data center for my day to day job, and it's like, okay, I have to allocate resources and I have to make sure the bandwidth is there and I have to do all sorts of things. But, but the minute I start explaining it to a layperson, their eyes just kind of glaze over and there's like, I don't get what you're saying. It's just magic. And that's kind of how the storytelling is as well. It's like, all right, there's a bunch of stuff behind that and how that went into work. But most people just want to see the cool effect, right? Yeah. Now, in laying out future volumes there are definitely seeds that are being laid in this one so like the references to atlantis the uh the antagonist being there at the end and you expect some of those to be picked up uh in the six books that have been published thus far do they pick up like the exploration of where this computer program that they're all living in came from at all you know what they have not um they mention you know there's a couple people who mentioned basically like Hey, there's, and I think, I think it was mentioned in the first book as well. Who says that it wasn't God that created the simulation Mm -hmm. that, that we're doing this. And so it's a, it's one of those things where they just kind of leave it up to like, we don't know who created this, but it doesn't matter because we can use it and we can use it for our benefit. So yeah, they have not explored it yet. In, In the conversation with the Bishop, there's some, like, as they're heading to talk to the Bishop, uh martin is a little dismissive of religion and philip was like whoa 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 <laughs> like religion is basically as valid as what we got going on here do you not see that um <laughs> and uh i think I, I i just like some of those like mentor mentee moments where philip kind of like sees what martin is thinking and has to like present the alternate point of view immediately to him see and okay, okay i'm glad you i'm glad you mentioned that because when I, you know, I first read this when it was pretty much brand new and I very much identified more with Martin, but over the past few years, I, you know, you, you progress in your career and you progress in your experiences. And this last time going through it before the show, I, I started seeing a lot more from Philip's perspective and not just his perspective, but like, I should be a mentor more like Philip is. I really like the way that he's doing this mentor relationship where he's not just being like, I know more than you. And so you're going to do what I say. I mean, he basically says that at a couple points, mm-hmm. but it's for his benefit. And it's like, okay, this is something that I feel like the world and a lot of industries really could use more of because most successful people in life have found mentors to work with, whether it is a, uh, a more structured relationship or just a, Hey, I've worked with this guy and he taught me a lot. Um, 
and I, th- I think we could use a lot more mentors in just in the world in general. And I love, I love the way that Philip has shown he's, he's not, he's not self-aggrandizing. He's not, he's not doing it out of pure hubris. He's doing it because he's like, Hey, I like this kid's style. I want to mentor him. And yeah. I, yeah. No. And, uh, like you said, it's, um, it's not just like, I want you to think the way I think it's, um, it's, it's, I have some experience that you don't have. I'm going to guide you some, uh, but I'm also still going to let you continue to be your own person. Like definitely the way Martin thinks about macros and the way the, you know, the decoding can be used is a different kind of problem solving than what Philip is going to, has been using. Yeah. And you know, there, there are some basic nuggets that he gives him. I, I really love the moment where he commands him to think. And, uh, cause I mean, this is Martin's whole entire problem in the entire story because there's a balance, right. Of, of the man of action versus the man of contemplation. And, uh, Philip says, I command you to think being a man of action is fine, but you need to think before you act. And before he even stops talking, Martin is rebutting it. And Philip's like, hang on, hang on. Did you think about that? <laughs> and then says, no, think, think about what you were just about to say. And then uh, he stops. He's like, and Philip asks him, did you think about that? And Martin says, yes, I did. And I'm not going to say it. And there's, there's that balance, right? There, there's some things that there are some things that you learn with age. Not, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that you learn with age that you probably shouldn't have, but there are some things that, you know, finding that balance is, is a, is a pretty, pretty golden nugget right there. Yeah. And I think the, um, the relationship we see is a, is a really good balance of, um, allowing Martin to go learn what he needs to from experience, but also stopping him from like really hurting himself. <laughs> no. yeah. Uh, you know, and, well, even though sometimes he does let him hurt himself, like when they, they're going to learn how to fly, he's like, this is going to hurt because you're going to mess up flying. You're going to come hit the ground really hard. Uh, but we've rewritten your computer code. So you actually won't be injured, but you still feel pain because it's actually pretty unwise of us. We found to turn off pain. So <laughs> we, yeah, is it, it? I find it really, I find it really funny because, you know, why is it that it's rude to laugh at somebody when they get hurt? Oh, well, probably because there's the chance of an injury. But if it's just a little bit of pain, oh, you know, a guy stepping on a rake, a football to the groin. I mean, there's there's something about that that people just want to laugh at that you have to train yourself not to laugh at. Yeah, and then to be like, oh, I should have empathy towards them. But I, I love the fact that they watch the people learning how to fly as a, okay, now we just get to li- laugh at them because they're not really going to be hurt. Yeah. There's a, a kind of a, a safe uh, level of, of a comedy that, that they're able to, to enjoy. And, and there's even to the point where uh, when he's falling and he realizes, Oh, well, I'm going to hit that ground hard. He sees one of the other wizards cast a spell. He's like, Oh, I'm going to have to thank him. And then he hits the ground and bounces. And he sees that uh, the spell that had been cast was actually to track how far he bounced not to soften his <laughs> blow. Uh, but because you know, he's like actually cannot break a bone, uh, can't actually get a concussion or anything like it, it, you know, makes it the kind of, uh, safe release for an audience to kind of enjoy that incident versus, uh, 
you know, like like you said, uh, you know, actual pain to to a person that's that has the weight of potential long term damage happening. Right, right. Oh. Yeah, that's a that that's one of these things that it's it's almost like watching a child learn how to walk because it's really cute to see them toddle and and fall like everybody's they're just on the edge of their seats ready to catch them if something terrible is going to happen but you got to let them fall you got to let them get bumped and fail in a safe environment i think is probably a good way to say that yeah i i I think that's a pretty uh good description like like you want them to fail but you also you don't want them to like fail so bad that there's there's no damage. Um, and there's, there's definitely, um, a line that needs to be walked there as a mentor that I, I think all of us, like that's something as mentors or as parents, um, uh, you know, in, in any sense, you've got to learn where that line is of like, or am I handholding too much and preventing any danger from existing in this space? Or am I just letting them loose and something bad could really happen? So, so does that does that mean that this is actually a how to parent guide, and Martin is the child, and Philip is the parent? Well, I, I, I think it, it, you know, playing with the world of the the hero's journey. That's something you can often pick out as uh, characters enter the new world and and find their mentor. Um, that's one reason why it resonates, is because naturally in life we hit those points where either we're entering the new world and a mentor finds us, or you know, you, you have someone, uh, be it like a teacher student relationship or a parent child relationship. Um, but that's part of the pattern of life. Uh, and this definitely fits into that mold. Well, Brandon, do you have any final thoughts about, uh, magic 2.0 off to be the wizard? I, I think that, and, and you mentioned earlier that this, that this book does a really good job at making Martin not just some overpowered character that can do everything. He's kind of he's kind of a bumbling fool at a lot of times, which means that when he does stand up and do something good and right, uh, you're just all that much more proud of him. And I really feel like it is a it makes Martin that much more relatable to probably the core audience for this book. That you know. They're they're pretty good at what they do, but most people who probably jumped into this are probably fairly young, and they probably are used to being good at what they do, but also not always knowing all the consequences. And so I think, yes, you you could have made him overpowered, and honestly, he is. He can change all of reality in this file. But because he's he's a flawed individual still, still he's just that much more relatable to us. Yeah, he's not um, evil. He's also not pure. He's kind of lazy, a uh, little self-indulgent, but also empathetic. <laughs> like he wants to do the right thing, but he kind of wants the shortest path to doing the right thing. <laughs> I think is a good way to describe it, which I think there's a, a large percentage of humanity are like basically good, but also not going out of our ways to be super good all the time. Uh, With a little bit of impulse control issues. <laughs> yeah uh so yeah he's he's not like the chosen one who has a skill set that no one's ever seen before he's not falling into that trope at all um even as he maybe thinks initially like oh no one else has ever done this before he doesn't think again you know he thinks it's more by chance than any special skill that he he has unlocked and then he pretty quickly discovers oh right of course other people have found this vial um and 
I, I, there's also the acknowledgement that when uh, in the battle with uh, Jimmy Merlin, there's uh, a point where the wizards get cut off from the shell so they can't access their power and the, and they all have to run. And he says, you know what? Being able to teleport everywhere and float has made us all very out of shape. <laughs> so it's not just uh, Martin who's looking for the easiest way out. It's it's kind of a natural thing. If you had this ability, you do a lot less walking <laughs> than than we do now. <laughs> that's true that's true like we we drive a lot more now than we probably should mm-hmm. my uh, but imagine if you could just I, teleport or float through your house would right. you even take stairs or would you just float up the stairs huh i would probably float that that is probably <laughs> exactly what i would do <laughs> flugi <laughs> oh i i do want to say one of my favorite parts was all their magic words are in Esperanto because some people do speak Latin in this time period. And they, they say <laughs> no one speaks Esperanto in any time period. So it's very safe to make Esperanto their, uh, their magical code words. All right. Well, Brandon, thank you for joining us for this episode. That is going to wrap things up for show notes and links to all the other great dueling genre shows. Listeners, you can go to duelinggenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the protagonist podcast in your podcast app of choice. And please leave us a review. It really helps us out. We would like to thank Nick English who designed our logo and Scott Tofty who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to go check out episode number 25. When we talked about Ender's Game, a book that gets name dropped in this series. Uh, also episode number 43, when we talked about Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Sorcerer's Stone, another book that gets referenced in Magic 2.0. You can reach us by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. You could also follow us on Twitter. You go to at protagonistpod or at jdorowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at dismanit. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. Brandon, do you have anything you would like to plug? Yeah, you can find all of my stuff by heading over to fandompodcast.com. We do a show once a week over there, just about all the different fandoms that you love. And that is a quality podcast that I very much enjoy listening to, and I do recommend it to all of our listeners. Thank you again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. like responding to a question so everything was working until that moment it seemed until i started talking about the secrets of technology and then the technology (laughs) shut me down Um, right